When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 11 of The Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter 11 The Forty Doors. When Ryder had dispatched from the jewelers who had polished the locket for him that package with its secret note and its warning plaid, he had no real assurance that the message would fall into Amy's hands, but he could think of nothing better, and he argued very favorably for his stratagem. That miniature should have some effect, and given the miniature and the bit of plaid cloth, Amy's quick wit ought to divine a message. She had always the key, he remembered, and the power of egress from her prison, and surely it ought not to be difficult for her to devise some way of getting a letter into the post. So his hope fluctuated between the garden gate and the daily mail at the bank, and he rather surprised McLean by the frequency and brevity of his visits, and by the duration of his stay in Cairo. For that he had an excuse, both to McLean and to the deserted Thatcher at the excavation camp. Two excuses, in fact, some belated identification work to be done at the museum, and a cracked wisdom tooth. Chiefly he spoke of the necessity for dentistry, and accounted for his moods with his molar. Of moods he had many moods when he contemplated his behavior lightly and brightly, or darkly in unrelieved disgust, moods when he refused to contemplate it at all. But he stayed. That was the conspicuous and enduring thing. He stayed. Jinny Jeffreys returned from the Nile by express to find him ensconced at her hotel, and her bright confidence suffered no diminution of its self-respect. And it was through Jinny that chance set another straw of circumstance dancing his way. Jinny had a frock she wished repaired. Mrs. Heath Brown, whom she had met upon the Nile, recommended to her a Mrs. Hendricks, wife of a British soldier, and a most clever little needlewoman. Jinny looked up Mrs. Hendricks, and found it impossible to secure her for some days, as she was busy refitting for a fashionable wedding in the Mohammedan world. A night later, and two nights before the wedding, Jinny made a narrative of the circumstances for Jack Ryder's benefit. "'Such frocks as I have to do, and the young lady no more caring.' had been a saying of Mrs. Hendricks that Jinny passed interestedly on to Jack. She had no memory of the young lady's name, but distinctly she recalled that she was young and beautiful and to marry a general. It was enough to launch Jenny's eager interest in Mohammedan marriages and foster the wish that she might attend one. She regretted Mrs. Heath Brown's absence and her lack of acquaintance, and suggested that Jack ought to know some one. "'Better than that, I'll take you,' said Jack with a promptness that brought a light to Miss Jeffrey's eyes. 
There was also a light in Jack Ryder's eyes, a swift burning of excitement and adventure. Why not? The thing was possible. Muffled in a charchuf and veiled with a heavy yasmuk, armed with enough Arabic for the briefest of encounters, he might dare the danger. Who in the world would discover him? Who would ever know? The thing was unthinkable. It was a desperate desecration, comparable only, in his vague analogies, to the Mecca pilgrimage and the profanation of a holy tomb. But its very improbability would prevent detection. Only Jinny had to keep her mouth extremely shut, before and afterwards. He impressed this upon her so thoroughly, as they did their shopping for the costume together the next morning, that she had compunctious moments of solicitude when she said he really ought not to. She would feel responsible. Thereupon he laughed and dared her to be game, and she grew all mirthful confidence again. But that night, sitting alone in a native café over his Turkish coffee, Ryder was grimly serious. He knew that it was a mad thing to do. He felt not so much the danger he ran from discovery, but the danger to his already shattered peace of mind from another glimpse of that strange girl, that young unknown, on whom he had spent such time and thought of late, that she seemed a very part of his existence. What was the good of going to her wedding reception? Feebly he told himself that it was his only chance to inform her upon the history of the Delcasses. There might have been reasons for her non-appearance at the gate, for her not writing. He could have no glimmering of what went on behind those barred windows. This was his only chance, he meant to say, to tell her, but his eager senses murmured, to see her again. That was it, to see her again. He owned the lure at last, with a bitter ruefulness. But he brightened up at that. It was partly his duty to himself. Now he had all sorts of fool imaginings about this girl. He was remembering her as something lovelier than a huri, more enchanting than fairy magic, more sweet than spring. He owed it to himself to rout these imbecile prepossessions and prove clearly and dispassionately that the girl was just a very nice little girl, a pretty bride, marrying into a very distinct life from his own, and a girl with whom he would not have an idea in common, a girl, in fact, far inferior to any American, a girl not to be compared to Jinny Jeffries. Besides, there was fun in the thing. It tempted him tremendously. It was adventurous, romantic, forbidden. He heard the word echoed in Turkish behind him. So engrossed in his thoughts had he been that he had been inattentive to the rhythm of the old Kazib, the tale-teller's voice, as he held forth from the divan beside his long-stemmed pipe to his nightly audience of men and boys, camel-drivers, small merchants, desert men from the long caravans who were the frequenters of this café. Tonight there were few about the old man, and Ryder had small difficulty in drawing nearer the circle. A green-turbaned Arab, with the profile of a Washington and the naive eyes of youth, whispered to him courteously that it was the tale of the third Kaland, and the Prince Azib was in the palace of the forty damsels who were farewelling him, as they were to depart, according to custom, for forty days. Kazib, with a faint salutation of his turban towards the newcomer, went slowly, sonorously on with his tale. "'We fear,' said the damsel unto Azib, lest thou contraire our charge and disobey our injunctions. Here now we commit to thee the keys of the palace, which containeth forty chambers, and thou mayest open of these thirty and nine, but beware, and we conjure thee by Allah and by the lives of us, lest thou open the fortieth door, for therein is that which shall separate us for ever. For a moment the café faded from Ryder's eyes. He was in the gloom of a garden, 
a shadowy darkness just touched by a crescent moon, and beside him in the shrubbery a dark shrouded form, shaking its shawled head at him in denial, and whispering, lightly but tremblingly, It is a forbidden door, forbidden as that fortieth. There are thirty and nine doors in your life, monsieur, that you may open, but this is the forbidden. He had meant to look up that tale, and now chance was reminding him of it again. A superstitious man, Ryder's great-grandfather, perhaps, would have felt it an omen of warning, and a devout man, Ryder's grandfather, perhaps, would have taken it for a sign from heaven to divert his steps. Ryder reflected upon coincidence. "'When I saw her weeping,' Kazib was intoning, and now Ryder attended, his scanty knowledge of the vernacular straining and overleaping the blanks. "'Prince Azib said to himself, "'By Allah, I will never open that fortieth door, never, and in no wise.' "'A wise bird,' thought Ryder to himself, drawing on his cigarette. "'And I bade her farewell,' continued the voice, slipping into the first person. "'Thereupon all departed, flying like birds, leaving me alone in the palace. "'When evening drew near, I opened the door of the first chamber, "'and found myself in a place like one of the pleasances of paradise. "'It was a garden with trees of freshest green and ripe fruits of yellow sheen. "'And I walked among the trees, and I smelt the breath of the flowers, "'and heard the birds sing their praise to Allah, the One, the Almighty.' Alhamdulillah, murmured Ryder's neighbors reverently, and I looked upon the apple whose hue is parcel red and parcel yellow, and I looked upon the quince whose fragrance putteth to shame musk and ambergris, and upon the pear whose taste surpasses sherbet and sugar, and the apricot whose beauty striketh the eye as if she were a polished ruby. On the morrow I opened the second door, and found myself in a spacious plain set with tall date-palms, and watered by a running stream whose banks were shrubbed with rose and jasmine, while privet and eglantine, oxeye, violet and lily, narcissus, oregain, and winter giddy-flower carpeted the borders, and the breath of the breeze swept over those sweet-smelling gross. How inadequate, Ryder realized, had been the description given by the book of Genesis to the Garden of Eden. And the third door, droned on the rhythmic voice, into an open hall hung with cages of sandalwood and eaglewood, full of birds which made sweet music, such as the mockingbird and the kusha, the merle, the turtle-dove, and the nubian ring-dove. A trifle restively, Ryder stirred. He liked birds, but he wanted to be getting on to that fortieth door, and this was slow progress. Not a sign of impatience marred the bright, absorbed content of the other listeners, intent now upon the wonders behind that fourth chamber revealed, stores of pearls and jasons and beryls, and emeralds and corals and carbuncles, and all manner of precious gems and jewels, such as the tongue of man could not describe. The story-teller proceeded. Then, quoth Prince Azib, now verily am I the monarch of the age, since by Allah's grace this enormous wealth is mine, and I have forty damsels under my hand, nor is there any to claim them save myself. The handsome Arab beside Ryder inhaled his pipe luxuriously. By the grace of Allah, he said reverently, then I gave not over opening place after place until nine and thirty days were passed, and in that time I had entered every chamber except that one whose door I was charged not to open. But my thoughts ever ran upon that forbidden fortieth, and Satan urged me to open it for my own undoing. I see his finish, said Ryder interestedly to himself, and he thought of the analogy. So I stood before the chamber, and after a few moments' hesitation opened the door which was plated with red gold, and entered. I was met by a perfume 
whose like I had never before smelt, and so sharp and subtle was the odour that it made my senses drunken as with strong wine, and I fell to the ground in a fainting fit that lasted a full hour. When I came to myself I strengthened my heart, and entering found myself in a chamber bespread with saffron and blazing with light. Presently I spied a noble steed, black as the murks of night when murkiest, standing ready-saddled and bridled, and his saddle was of red gold. Before two mangers, one of clear crystal, wherein was husked sesame, and the other also of crystal, containing water of the rose scented with musk. When I saw this I marvelled, and said to myself, Doubtless in this animal must be some wondrous mystery, and Satan. Satan the stoned, murmured Ryder's neighbour religiously. Satan cozened me, so I led him without, and mounted him, and struck him withal. When he felt the blow he neighed a neigh with a sound like deafening thunder, and opening a pair of wings flew up with me in the firmament of heaven, far beyond the eyesight of man. After a full hour of flight he descended, shaking me off his back, lashed me on the face with his tail, and gouged out my left eye, causing it to roll upon my cheek. Then he flew away. On rolled the voice, narrating the prince's descent to the table of the other one-eyed youths, but Ryder was unheeding, and at the close he inclined his head with the other listeners, murmuring, May Allah increase thy prosperity, as he felt in his pockets for the silver which the others were drawing from turban and sleeves and sash to lay in the patriarch's lap, and then raised his head to question diffidently, Would you interpret, O Kazib, the meaning of that door? For I hear that it hath now become a saying of a forbidden thing. The sage hesitated, sucking at his pipe. Then he said slowly, To every man, O youth, is there a forbidden door, beyond which waits the steed of high adventure, with wings beyond man's riding, and so the rider is lost, and his vision is gone. But for him who could ride, rider suggested, Inshallah! Who can say till he has tried his destiny, and better are the nine and thirty chambers of safe pleasance than the lonely sightlessness of the outcast one? It is a tale which, if it were written upon the eye-corners with needle-gravers, were a warning to those who would be warned. For a moment their eyes held each other, smiling but grave. Ryder's thoughts were of the morrow, of that forbidden entry he was planning to make, of the risks, the wild uncertainties. Wisdom and counsel looked significantly out at him, out of those patriarchal eyes. Prudence and sanity clamoured within him for a hearing. And then he smiled, the whimsical boyish smile of young adventuring. But whoever, O oh my father, had opened that forbidden door the various crack, and breathed its scent and glimpsed its dazzlement, then for him there is no turning back, he confided. He rose, and Kasib's eyes followed him. Luck go with you, my son, he said clearly, in Allah's name. And smiling in faint ruefulness, may Allah heed thee, Ryder murmured piously. End of chapter 11「Chapter Twelve of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Twelve: The Uninvited Guest. Now, as he stood before Amy and saw her eyes widen with recognition, he knew that he would have need of all his luck and all his wit. He stepped hastily forward. Alhamdulillah, glory to God that he has permitted me to behold you this day, he murmured, in the studiously sing-song Arabic that might be expected from a humble Turkish woman 
in plain mantle and yasmuk. May Allah continue to spread before thee the carpet of enjoyment. And then, lower, almost muffled by the thick veil, can you give me a moment? Eagerly, significantly, his eyes met hers. Half fearfully, Amy flashed an excited look around her. The space before the marriage throne had thinned, for there were no more arrivals waiting to offer their congratulations, and the guests were clustering now about the tables for refreshment, or drifting into the next salon, where behind firmly stretched silken walls a stringed orchestra was playing. Miss Jeffreys alone was lingering near, but she moved off now, at a secret look from Ryder, with an appearance of unconcern. "'I'm going to try my vernacular on the bride,' Ryder had told her. "'Don't linger or look alarmed. I won't give the show away.' So there was no one to overhear a low-toned colloquy between the bride and the veiled woman, no one to note or wonder that the veiled woman was speaking, strangely enough, in rapid English. "'When I didn't hear from you, I had to come, to know if you received the package and the letter I sent.' With a swift gesture of her little ringed hand, Amy drew from the laces of her bosom the heavy gold locket. "'Indeed, I have it, and the note, too, I found. But I could not write you. There was no way, no one to trust to mail it. And they had stolen my key,' she whispered, and the confessing words with their quiver of forlornness told Ryder something of the story of those helpless days and nights. He murmured, "'I didn't dare write you more personally, for fear they would find the note. I understood.' that plaid about the box that was so clever a warning. I kept the box and hunted in it. I wanted to tell you more about that locket. I dug it up myself from the tomb I was excavating. Do you remember how you wished that I would dig from the sands whatever secret I most desired? And I found that. And it happened that at McLean's I had met the French agent who was searching for any trace of the Delcasses, of the wife and child of the explorer who had disappeared fifteen years before. That miniature was your image, and I guessed at once. McLean and I went to the Pasha. Oh, I didn't tell him I'd met you, he flung in, his eyes twinkling. And we pretended we knew all about his marriage to Madame Delcasse, and he owned up without a quiver. But when we tried to claim you for the French family, he doubled like a hare. He said that Delcasse's child was dead, died when his own child was a baby, and that you were his own. But I was sure that you were more than fourteen, and that he was simply putting it over on us so as to have this marriage go on without interference. And so I tried to get the story to you. Even now I thought you ought to know, he added, as if in palliation of his invasion here, for he realized now how tremendous an invasion it was. All the guests about him had not given him that feeling, all that sea of femininity, those grave matrons whose serenely unveiled faces would burn with shame to be beheld by this stranger, those bright slim girls in their extravagant frocks, their tulle, their lace, their pearls, their diamonds, all the hidden charms that no man had yet seen stirred in him no more than an excited and adventurous curiosity. But the vision of Amy, that delicate beauty in its tragic irony of throne and diadem, it touched him to tenderness and to an actual sense of sacrilege at the freedom of his gaze. No moonlight vision this, ethereal and dreamlike, but a vivid, disquieting radiance of dark shining eyes and rose-flushed cheeks. He had never seen her hair before, midnight hair, escaping little curls from the veil and the diadem and he had never really seen her mouth, wistful and gay, like the mouth of the miniature, nor her chin, so tender and willful, nor her skin, satin soft in its veiling from the daylight. She was more than young and sweet and fair. She was beauty, beauty with its elusive, ineluctable spell, entangled with the appeal of her helplessness. A bright blush flooded her now, and her eyes fell in confusion, 
before the prolonging of his look. "'But it is dangerous, your being here,' she murmured. "'The fortieth door,' he reminded her. Under her breath, "'Ah, you remember?' "'I remember. And but last night I heard Kazib, the storyteller, tell the tale, and I thought of you and your warning, of the door that hid you, that it was forbidden for me to open. And so you opened it, monsieur.' Faintly she smiled, with downcast lashes. "'And I came as you first came to me, in mantle and veil.' For a moment their thoughts fled back to that masquerade, which seemed so long ago. "'But it is too late,' she said tremulously. "'Is it too late for me to help you?' At that her eyes rose to his again in a swift flash of hunted fear. "'Oh, take me away from him,' she breathed suddenly, unpremeditatively. "'Somehow, somewhere.' Another figure came towards them, Madame de Coulvain in all her severe elegance of black. "'Come and join your friends at supper, my dear. There is no need for you to be pilloried here any longer,' she observed with an indifferent scrutiny of the persistent veiled woman, and Ryder moved slowly away, while Amy came dutifully down from the throne, a huge black bending to hold her train. "'I thought you were never coming. What were you talking about?' demanded a voice in Ryder's ear and he found Jinny Jeffreys at his side, her bright grey eyes pouncing upon him with curiosity. "'Oh, I wished her joy, native phrases, that sort of thing,' he answered mechanically, as they drew back into an embrasure of the mess-rubier that formed one side of the great room. "'But you were talking for ever. I saw you holding forth at tremendous rate. Why won't you let me stay and listen?' "'You'd have put me off my shot. I had to feel unobserved to play up.' "'You must be fearfully good at Arabic.' said Jinny guilelessly. And what did she say? Why, she didn't say anything in particular. But what was that she was showing you? I saw her bend forward with a locket or something. A plague upon Jinny's bright eyes. Oh, yes, the locket, said Ryder with an effort. She, uh, she showed it to me. But why? Wasn't that awfully funny? Oh, I believe it's a custom, courtesy stunt, you know, to show a poor guest some of the presents, he explained, manufacturing under pressure. I'd wish she'd show me her rings. Did you ever see so many? It was the only thing about her you'd call really Eastern, all those glittering diamonds on her fingers. And did you notice her hands? Jinny went on enthusiastically. Jack, I never knew there was anything so lovely as that girl in the world. She's simply exquisite. I suppose it's her whole life, Miss Jeffreys reflected, keeping herself beautiful. Her eyes rested curiously on the feminine groups before them. They haven't anything else to do or think about, have they? I understand some of them are remarkably educated young women. What's the use of it? said the practical daughter of an American college. They can't ever meet any men, but just a husband. They can read for themselves, can't they? And talk to each other. And, well, what do you girls do with your education anyway? You don't lug anything very heavy about the golf course and the ballroom. Who wants us to? But we do bring something to committees and clubs and welfare work, Miss Jeffreys maintained stoutly and we are always into arguments at dinners, while these girls, they can't dine out, they haven't anybody but themselves to argue with, and it doesn't matter a straw politically what they think, they can't even change the customs that their great-great-great-grandfathers imposed. If I were one of these girls, she declared positively, I wouldn't bother about Kant and chemistry and history. I'd stuff myself full of sweetmeats and loll around on a divan, and not care what happened outside, or else I'd be miserable. Perhaps they are miserable. They ought to fight. Think, think, said Jinny dramatically, of marrying some man you've never seen, the way that lovely girl is doing. Suppose she doesn't like him. 
Suppose he's dull and cranky, and mean and greedy. Suppose he bores her. Suppose she actually hates him. Why, Jack, it's horrible. And yet she submits. She submits to it. Suppose she has to submit, that she hasn't a soul on earth to help her. How would you fight, I wonder? Well, you don't need to shout about it. That woman's looking now, that woman with the green turban and the stuffed date eyes. Nervously, Jinny glanced around. It's a fearful lark, she murmured, but I don't believe I'd ever have had the nerve if I'd realized. What do you suppose they would do, Jack, if they found you out? Those big blacks look so, so uncivilized. Her eyes rested upon the huge eunuch at the far entrance of the salon, a huge, hideous fellow, with red fez, baggy blouse and trousers, and a knife-handle sticking piratically from a sash. "'He has on English Oxfords,' said Ryer, lightly. "'That's a saving something. But they aren't going to find out. I have an idea we ought to make our getaway now, and that we had better not go together. You go first, and then I'll stroll along, and whisk off these duds in some quiet corner. I have to meet a man to-night, but I'll probably see you to-morrow.' And don't, he entreated, don't, as you love your life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, breathe a word of my being here like this to anyone, any time, anywhere. I was an unmitigated ass to link you up with it, so be wary. Oh, I shall, Jinny Jeffreys promised vividly, and with a last look about the old palace, the empty marriage throne, and the dissolving knots of guests, she gave a little nod to her veiled companion, sauntered without visible trepidation past the staring eunuch at the door, went down the long stairs where other departing guests were drawing on mantles and veils, and so made her way across a shadowy garden and out the gate that another black opened. And then she drew a sudden breath of relief and glanced up at a sky of sunset fires and felt the free airs play with her hair and face, and so shook off, lightly and gratefully, that darkening impression of shuttered rooms and guarding blacks. Little rivers of wine and fire were bubbling in Emmy's veins. She was gay at supper, as a bride should be gay. It was enough for those first few moments that she had seen him again, that he had dared to come and try to help her, that he had cared enough to come. Her heart sang little paeans of joy and triumph. She sketched impossible scenes of escape. She saw herself in a shrouding mantle, slipping with him past the guests at the door. She saw them speeding away in a motor. She saw France, the unknown Delcasses, a bright, gay world of freedom and romance. Or perhaps, if not to-night, then to-morrow. They would plan. She would obtain permission to take a drive, and there would be a signal, a waiting car. But better now. She could not endure even the call of ceremony from that man who called himself her husband, the very memory of his eyes on her. Decidedly it must be to-night, and Ryder would think of a way. She must get back to him. He would be lingering. She must get away from this hateful table, these guests and companions. A wild impatience tore at her. She grew uneasy, anxious, fretted at the frightening way that time was slipping past. Her radiance vanished, her smile was nervous, forced, as she sat at her table of honour, amid the circle of her friends, with a linked wreath of candelabra sending its sparkle of lights over the young faces and jewel-clasped throats, over the glittering silver on the white satin cloth among the drift of pink and white rose petals. She began to bite her lips nervously. She did not hear what her bridesmaids were chattering about. Her eyes went often, with that stealth that invites regard, to the tiny platinum and diamond watch upon her wrist. Would they never finish? Would they never be free? She wondered if she dared feign an illness to rise and leave them. But no, that would mean solicitude, companions. And now the slaves were bringing still another round of trays. Oh, hurry, hurry! 
her tightening nerves besought. At last the older women were going. Not even for a wedding would they deeply infringe upon that rule which keeps the Moslem women indoors after the sun has set. Ceremoniously each made to the bride her adieu and good wishes, and ceremoniously a frantically impatient Amy returned the formal thanks due for assistance at the humble fete. She did not see that black mantle anywhere. Her heart sank. Stupid, she told herself with quivering lips, to dream that he could dare to linger, that he had any way to get her out. By help he meant no more than getting letters to France for her. And yet his eyes, when they had met hers, surely he had meant. But when she had disappeared from the reception-room to attend the supper, when there seemed no way of speaking again to her, and all the outsiders, all but the invited guests, were departed, he had been obliged to go too. Perhaps someone had begun to notice him. She wondered if he had been careful about his shoes, his hands. How had he managed about the dress, anyway? And then she remembered that girl, that pretty American with the ruddy hair to whom she had seen him talking, and she conjectured that there was feminine aid and confidence. A wave of bitterness swept over her. He had told that girl about her. He knew that girl well enough to tell her, and perhaps he was only sorry for the poor little French girl in the Turkish harem. Perhaps they were both sorry. Had he told that girl, she thought with bitter mutiny, that he had kissed her? That girl must have been very sure of him not to be jealous of his interest in herself. And now they could be somewhere together, perhaps talking her over, while she was here, here forever. She was so white now, so silent, so distraught, that all the chatter of the younger girls who were lingering around her could not dispel the feeling of depression. They cast covert glances of discomfort at each other, begged for more music from the orchestra, tallied with an effort of the size and spaciousness of the palace and the magnificence of the feast. She had told herself that she had ceased to hope. She did not know how false it was until the eunuch brought his message. Then hope really died. The general was below and begged to be announced to Madame. "'We fly,' whispered a lingerer with nervous laughter, and hastily the young people hurried into their charchefs and veils, murmuring among themselves, with sidelong glances at that white figure whose cold hand and cheek they had just touched, hastily they sped, like light-footed nymphs in some witch's robes, down the long room, while Madame de Coulvain drew back a strand of the girl's dark hair, and murmured, "'But smile, my dear,' to the still figure, and escaped with the guests. And then Amy was alone in the great room, deserted of its throngs, a darkening room, full of burned-down candles and fallen flower-petals, with here and there the traces of the revellers, a scented handkerchief, a fan, a buckle from some French slipper, or a feather from some ancient turban-clasp. Like the ghost of some deserted queen, with her regal satins and glittering circlet, she waited. There was a moment of grace in which she tried to turn a gallant face toward the next moment. Then he came, advancing. It may have been her distorted fancy, but down the long perspective that figure looked more mincing, more waspish, more unreal than ever, and she was conscious of that swift rising of dislike, of antagonism touched with reasonless fear. End of chapter 12Chapter 13 of The Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE FORTIETH DOOR by Mary Hastings Bradley CHAPTER Thirteen: 
The bay returns. He kissed her hands. She caught the murmur of compliments and the mingled scent of musk and wine. He had been dining at his reception for the men, but he called now for a table and more refreshment. A small table was brought to the end of the room near the marriage throne, where all the day she had paraded. A richly embroidered cloth of satin was flung over it, and from crowding candelabra fresh lights shed down a little circle of brilliance. Faintly Amy protested that eat she could not, and then she made a feint of eating, lingering over her sherbets, because eating was, after all, so safe and uncomplicated a thing. The black brought champagne in its jacket of ice and filled their glasses. The general rose. En notre bonheur, to our happiness, he declared, holding out his glass, and she clinked her own to it and brought her lips to touch the brim, but not to that toast could she swallow a single one of the bubbles that went winking up and down the hollow stem. The glass trembled suddenly in her hand as she set it down. An overpowering sense of fatigue was upon her. With the death of her poor hope, with the collapse of all those flighty childish dreams, the leaden weight of reality seemed to descend crushingly upon her. She felt stricken, inert, apathetic. It was all so unreal, so bizarre. This could not possibly be taking place in her life, this fantastic scene, this table set with lights and food at the end of a dark, deserted old room opposite this grimacing, foppish stranger. She could barely master strength for her replies. How had it all gone? Excellently? She was satisfied with her new home, with the service, the appointments? He plied her with questions, and she tried to summon her spirit. She achieved a few perfunctory phrases, the words of a frightened child struggling for its manners. She tried to smile, unconscious of the betrayal of her eyes. He told her, sketchily, of his day. Abhor those affairs, those speeches, he told her, gazing at her, his wine-glass in his hand, a flush of wine and excitement in his face. She found it unpleasant to look at him. Her glance evaded his. She stammered a word of praise for the palace. It must be very ancient, she told him, very interesting. He waved a hand on which an enormous ruby glittered. He could tell her stories of it, he promised. It had been built by one of the Mamelukes, his ancestor. Its old banqueting hall was still untouched. The collectors would give much to rifle that, but they would never get their sharks' noses in. Nothing had been changed, but something added. Once the Mad Khedive had borrowed it for some years, and begun his eternal additions. Forty girls, they say, he kept here, smiled Hamdi Bey. They gulped their pleasure in those days. It is better to sip, is it not? He smiled. But these are no stories for a bride. I only trust that you will not find your palace dull. It is very quiet now, very of the old school. You may miss your pianos, your electricity, all your pretty Parisian modernity. She glanced at the glittering table. But I do not find this so, so much of the old school. Here one does not eat rice with the fingers. And I, said the bey, leaning suddenly towards her on his outspread arm, do you find me too much of the old school, eh? Eh? But, but you, monsieur, she stammered, still looking down, you, I do not know you, not yet. Not yet. Excellent. There will be time. I confess that now I am weary. Ah, and that diadem is heavy. Your head must ache with it, he said solicitously. Perhaps it was the diadem that gave her that leaden, constricted sense of a band tightening about her forehead. She put up her hands to it. Permit me, he said quickly, springing to his feet. 
Permit me to aid you. He stepped behind her and bent over her. She held her head very still, stiff with distaste, and felt the weight lifted. He surveyed the circlet a moment, then placed it upon the marriage throne behind her. She had an ironic memory of the false omen of her crowning, of soft, satisfied, little Gul Adin's bestowal of her own happiness. Happiness, indeed. "'And that veil, surely that is incommoding?' suggested the suave voice, and she felt the touch of his hands on her hair where the misty veil was secured. She stammered that it was quite light. She would not trouble him. Then she held herself rigid, for suddenly he had swept the veil aside, and bent to press his lips to that most hidden of all veiled sanctities for a Moslem, the back of her neck. She did not stir. She sat fixed and tense. Then slowly the blood came back to her heart, for he was moving away from her again, to his place at the table. Laughing a little, pulling at his blond moustache in a gesture of conquest, his kindling eyes glinting down at her, "'You must forgive the precipitateness of a lover,' he murmured. "'You do not know your own beauty. You are like a crystal, in which the world has thrown no reflections. All is pure and transparent.' If she did not find words to answer him, to divert his admiration, she felt that she was lost. "'You are not complimentary. A bit of glass, monsieur, instead of a diamond. But I am too weary to be exacting. If now you will permit me to bid you good evening and withdraw—' "'Little trembler,' said the general, facetiously, and reached out a hand to touch her cheek, the light, reassuring caress that one might give a petted child, but it almost brought a cry of nervous terror from her lips. She thought that if he touched her again she would scream. He inspired her with a horrible fear. There was something so false, so smiling in him. He was like an ogre sitting down to a delicate dish of her young innocence, her childish terrors, her frank fears. She could not have told why she found him so horrible, but everything in her shrank convulsively from him. And the need of courtesy to him, and propitiation. The cup was bitterer than her darkest dreams. She wondered how many other women had drained such deadly bruise, had sat in such ghastly despair, before some other bridegroom, affable, confident, masterful. She told herself that she was overwrought, hysterical. The man was courteous. He was trying to be agreeable, to make a little expected love. He had drank a little too much. Another time she might find him different. He was probably no worse than any other man of her world. It was not in her world, each young Turkish girl said in those days, that one could find love. But it was not her world. It was an alien world, enforced, imprisoning. That was the bitterest gall of all the deadly cup. "'There is no need for haste,' he was assuring her. "'In a moment I will call your woman. Fatima, her name is, an old slave of our house.' "'I could wish,' said Amy, "'that I had been permitted to bring my old nurse, Miriam.' without whom I feel strange. No old nurses. I know their wiles, laughed the bey, setting down his drained cup with a wavering hand. They are never for the husbands, those old nurses. We will have no old trot's tricks here. He laughed again. This Fatima is a watchdog. I warn you, my little one. But if she does not please you, we can find another. And as for the rooms, I have assigned this suite to you, the suite of honour. This is the salon, and there— he pointed to a curtain door behind them, opening into a small room that Amy had already seen. There is your boudoir, and beyond that your sleeping apartment. I have had them done over for you, but you shall choose your own furnishings. 
Everything shall be to your taste, I promise you. You are too sweet to deny. You have but to ask. Certainly, she thought, he was drunk. He moved his head so jerkily, and his whole body swayed so queerly. Desperately she fought against her horror. Perhaps it was better for him to be drunk. Drunken men grow sleepy. Perhaps he would fall down and sleep. Perhaps she ought to urge him to drink. Long ago the black had left the bottle at his elbow and gone out of his room. But she did not move. She sat back in her chair, withdrawn and shrinking, watching him out of those dark, terrified eyes. "'You are as beautiful as dreams,' he told her, leaning towards her with such abruptness that his sword struck clankingly against the table. "'Beyond even the words of my babbling cousin, eh? Allah reward her! But she did me a good turn with her talk of you.' Fixedly he stared at her, out of those intent, inflamed eyes. "'I did not know that there was anything like you in the harems of Cairo. You are like a vision of the old poets. But I suppose that you do not know the ancient poetry. You little moderns are brought up upon French and English and music, and know little of the Arabic and the Persian. I dare say that you have never heard of the poet Yutea.' Still leaning towards her, he began to intone the stanzas in a very fair tenor voice and if his movements were at all unsteady, his speech was most precise and accurate. From her radiance the sun taketh increase, when she unveileth and shameth the moonlight bright. He chuckled. Ah, I shall put the triple veil upon you, my little moon. How is this one? O sun and moon of Pallas, cast thy sight. Enjoy her flower-like face, her fragrant light. Thine eyes shall never see in hair so black, beauty encase a brow so purely white. He got up and drew his chair closer to her. That is the song for you, little white rose of beauty. Back went her own chair, and she rose to her feet. I thank you for the compliment, monsieur. But now, may I have your permission to retire? For it has been a long day, and I am indeed fatigued. To her vexation, her voice was trembling, but she steadied it proudly. I bid you good evening. Nonsense, my little white rose. This is not so fatiguing. A few words more. But you are like the flower that flies before the wind. But your room, yes, to be sure. Shall I show you the way? I can discover it, monsieur. Monsieur, fie on you, my little dove. Hamdi, I tell you. Your lover, Hamdi. He laughed unsteadily, and put a hand on her arm. You are running away, I know that, and I have so much to tell you. Oh, it was tedious in that villa of your father's. Yes. I thought to myself, that is a fine story, a funny story, but I have heard them all before. And you are in no haste, you revellers. You have no little bride waiting for you at home. That one glance at you, I tell you it was the glance of which the poet sings, the glance that cost him a thousand sighs. I was on fire with impatience, for I am beauty's slave, little dove. You may have heard, but no matter. A wife must be a pearl unspotted. I am not as the English, who take their wives from the highways, where all men's glances have rested upon them. Have I not been at their balls? Their women dance in other men's arms. They marry wives whose hands other men have pressed. Sometimes, who knows, their lips have been kissed. And then a husband takes her. Oh, many thanks. He laughed sardonically, and waved his hands a little wildly. Oh, I know, English, all the Europeans. I have seen their women. I have seen them selling their wares, stripping themselves half bare in the evenings, the shameless. For me, never. My wife is a hidden treasure. You know what the poet says. Ah, there be one who shares with me her love. 
I'd strangle love, though life by love were slain, saying, O soul, death were the nobler choice, for ill is love when shared twixt partners twain. You are fond of your poets, said Amy with stiff lips. You, you kindle poetic fires, my little one. You, I, he stammered a moment, then forgot his fierce speech against foreign ways. You have the raven hair. His hand went out to it. He smoothed it back out of her eyes, then tried to draw her to him. Desperately, she resisted. Monsieur, one does not expect a gentleman. Expect? Oh! What should one expect when a man has such a little sweetmeat, when a little syrup drop, such a rose petal? Come, come, you would not struggle. But it was not the struggling hand of the frightened girl that sent the general back. It was a brown, sinewy hand on his shoulder, a hand protruding from a well-tailored gray sleeve and lilac-striped cuff that caught Hamdi Bey by the epauletted shoulder and sent him spinning about. Another hand was holding a revolver very directly at him. Silence! said Jack Ryder in his best Turkish, and repeated it with amplification in English. Not a sound, or I'll blow your head off. Amy gave a strangled gasp. He had not gone, then. He had hidden there, in some nook of that boudoir, behind those shadowy curtains, waiting to protect her, to rescue. Over one arm he had the black mantle and veil. Better put these on, he suggested, without taking his eyes from the rigid bay, and then run for it. But you? You? I'll take care of myself, after you are out of the way. Dare you try that? Or what do you suggest? Oh, not alone, together. So, so, said Hamdi Bey inarticulately. His head nodded, he staggered, his feet gave way, and he crumbled very completely upon the floor, and lay like a felled log. After a quick look at him, Ryder turned to Ami. Quick, then, we'll make a run for it. He did not finish. Hamdi Bey, upon the floor, fallen half under the folds of the white cloth, made a swift and very expert roll, and darted to his feet beside Amy, whirling her about with pinioned elbows for his shield. And so screened, he gave a shrill whistle. End of chapter 13「Fourteen of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Fourteen Within the Walls. Ryder sprang forward, trying to reach the bay, but he dodged skilfully. His holding Amy blocked Ryder in his attack. He knew that high, peculiar whistle had been a signal a call for aid, and he flung a lightning glance down that long room, tightening his hold on the revolver, but he did not see the small door that opened in the shadowy panelling behind him, nor the shadow that grew into the gorilla-like shape of the black as it launched itself through the air upon his back. He only heard Amy's scream, and then, before the crashing weight upon his shoulders, he staggered and went down. The bay flung Amy aside and rushed upon the prostrate figure, kicking the revolver from the outspread hand. The black knelt swiftly down, unfastening his silken sash. Giddily the room whirled about Amy. In the candlelight, leaping in the rush of conflict, she saw the bay and the black and their distorted shadows in a goblin blur, and beneath them she saw Ryder, helpless, his hands and feet pinioned. With the madness of despair she rushed forward, but the general intercepted her. "'He is quite helpless. You need not be alarmed for my safety, madame.' 
The cold, biting fury of his voice steadied her. She saw his face was distorted, livid with anger. His breathing was stertorous. She stood helplessly by the table. The general turned and looked down upon the face of the man who had dared to violate the sanctity of his harem and attempt to steal his bride. Beyond the man's head, Yusuf, the black, was squatting with a grinning, dog-like watchfulness. But Ryder did not require watching. That sash had been tied strongly about his hands and feet. He was as helpless as a baby. But the peculiar flavor of his helplessness was not so much fear before the fanatic fury of this man he had outraged, although he had a clear notion that his position was not enviably secure, but a bitter black chagrin. To have had the game in his hands and have bungled it, to have been surprised by that simple strategy, taken off his guard by a feigned collapse, the wily old Turk, for all his champagne, had the clearer, quicker brain. To have let him get to Emmy and call in his black, to have been thrown, disarmed. It was crass stupidity. It was outrageous mismanagement, abominable, maddening. And Amy must pay for it. He tried to think very quickly what could best clear her. He fixed his eyes on those glittering eyes, staring down upon him. I realize I owe you an explanation, he said grimly. If you will let me tell you. The bay turned to Amy with a smile that was the lifting of a lip and the distension of his nostrils. This fool thinks he has the time to talk his English. Desperately Ryder grasped for his vernacular. I want to tell you why I came. This, this young lady doesn't know me. Past the general he shot a look of warning at the girl. I was trying to get hold of her for her family in France. She is really a French girl. Tufik Pasha is not her father, but her— He could not find the word and dropped into English. Her stepfather, do you understand? And he had no business to marry her off. So I tried to steal her for the French family. It was a mad attempt which has failed, but for which the young lady should not be blamed. She has never seen me before. She had no idea I was here. After a pause. A remarkable story, said the general distinctly. He turned about to the table and drank off the last of a glass of champagne and wiped his mouth with the back of a hand that trembled. He turned back to stand over his prostrate invader. Now you, you dog of Satan, he snarled in a sudden snapping of restraint. How did you get here? Who admitted you? And at that, for all his trust and helpless plight, Jack Ryder grinned. He moved his head slightly. That blackbird of yours here. Yusuf, never. The very one. But he didn't know it. I was in that black mantle and veil. Oh, the mantle, I had forgot. So you stole in, disguised, to violate my hospitality, to outrage my harem, to gaze upon the forbidden faces of women, and to steal the bride. I tell you I was trying to rescue the girl for her French family. She is French, and Tufik Pasha is only— And what is that to me? Do I— The bay broke off, and then turned to the silent girl, who stood leaning towards them, a trembling ghost in white. And you, my little one, he murmured sardonically, with a savage irony of restraint, you, the little dove secluded from the world, who trembled at a kiss, the crystal vase, who had never reflected the blush of love, whose virginal praises I was chanting when I was so oddly assaulted. Do you support this idiot's story? Mechanically her head moved in assent. Her eyes, dilated with fear, were like the dark, fascinated eyes of some helpless bird. You never saw this young man, the bay pursued, and yet you were ready to run off with him. 
A pretty character you give yourself, my snowdrop. And you liked his eyes and hastened to obey? Amy was silent. From his ignominy upon the floor, Ryder hastened to interpose. It is true she had never seen me, but I had already written to her and acquainted her with the story. I tried to reach her first through her father, but that was useless, so I resorted to these desperate means. Oh, you wrote, and you told her you would be here and murder her husband? I told her nothing of the kind. She didn't know that I was coming until I spoke to her here, and then she had no idea that I was going to wait and carry her off. In the name of Allah, do you take me for a dolt, an ass? You, with your writing, and your masquerade, and your secrets, do any families try to recover their relatives with such means? Daughter or stepdaughter, it is nothing to me. But it is true, Amy insisted in a trembling voice. My father was Paul Delcasse. Yarak idisek man rabrak! Curse the man who brought thee up! Delcasse or devil! It is Tufik Pasha who is your stepfather, your guardian, who gave you to me for a wife. What has your genealogy to do with this affront upon my honour? But he did not intend to affront your honour, only to aid the family in France. I ask you again, do I resemble an ass that you should put such a burden of lies upon me? As if I did not know why young men risk their lives in the dead of night in other men's rooms. If I did not know what turns their brains to mush and their hearts to leading strings, and you, you little white rose of seclusion, his venom leaped out at her in his voice. It was a terrible voice, the cold, grating menace of a madman. You, who had never seen this man, but who fluttered to him like a white moth to a fire. You, who cowered from your husband's hand, but who turned to follow this strange dog into the streets. There will be care taken of you later. But now you complain of fatigue. Surely this scene is overtaxing for your delicacy, if you will come to your rooms. She drew back from the hand he laid upon her. Do not injure him, by Allah's truth. He is rash, mad, but a stranger. He did not know. He needs enlightenment. He needs to learn that a nobleman's harem is not a café of dancing girls, where all may enter and stare and fondle. Bishmallah, he shall learn. And now come. I shall not go, she said breathlessly. What? Struggle? But your father has been strangely remiss with his discipline. Permit me. His hand tightened in a grasp of iron. My train is caught, she said in a tone of sudden pettishness. She stooped to lift it with her hand that was free. My train! He mimicked her in a quivering falsetto. Have a care of my frock. Do not crush my chiffons. And these are the women for whom men break their heads and hearts? I tell you, sir, came urgently from Ryder, that the girl is innocent of all— Keep your tongue from her name, and your eyes from her face. Come, madame. With his iron grasp on her elbow, he thrust her towards the boudoir at the end of the drawing-room, behind whose curtains Ryder had so long been hiding. The chamber was in darkness, lighted only by a pale gleam from the other room. Amy stumbled across the rug, and found herself upon a huge divan against a window-screen. Fatima is in the next room to come at a call, but perhaps you would prefer to wait for me alone? I shall not be long. Desperately she caught at his arm, imploring, I beg you, monsieur, he has done no real harm. Let him go. He is a stranger. He did not know. And he will never trouble you again. I will do anything, everything you desire, if only you will not injure him. You trouble yourself strangely for a stranger. He is a stranger in danger for my sake, for it was in his duty to my, my family. Her trembling lips stumbled over the ridiculous lies. 
that he has blundered into this. He has no idea how shocking a thing he has. And you had no idea either, I suppose. You had never heard of honour or treachery or— I was wrong, oh, I was wrong. I did want to go to France, I own it. But I was not ready for marriage, and I had heard that you—I was afraid. But now, if you will let him go for my sake, if you will not visit my sins upon him, oh, I should be so grateful, so grateful, that anything I can ever do— But you will be grateful anyway, my little Blossom. I promise you that you will learn to be very grateful. It is easier to die than to learn to love a hated one, she reminded him softly, leaning towards him. I can die very willingly, monsieur and you would not want a wife before whom there was always an object of terror. Through the dusk her great eyes sought his. Be generous, and harm him not, she breathed. I beg of you, I implore. And if I am lenient, you will always be grateful? Mutely she nodded, her eyes trying pitifully to read that shadowy mask of mockery he turned towards her. And how grateful could you be, little dove? Pitifully she smiled. "'Could you?' he murmured. "'Could you learn to kiss?' He leaned nearer, and involuntarily she shrank back, faintly. "'At this moment I beg of you, monsieur.' "'Oh, if it is to be an affair of moments, we shall never find the right one. But you were so full of promises.' "'I will do anything,' said Amy convulsively, "'if you will promise me.' "'Come, then, a kiss. A peck from my little dove.' She looked at him out of wretched eyes. "'And you promise to free him, not to hurt him?' "'I promise not to hurt a hair of his head. "'Come, that is generous, isn't it? "'As to freeing him, hm, that is for later. "'Perhaps if you are very good. "'A kiss, then, and later.' "'He bent over her. "'She shut her eyes and heard the taunt of his laugh. "'She kissed him, and he laughed again. "'What is it that the Afghan poets say? "'Kiss lips lose no sweetness.' but renew their freshness with the moon. Certainly, if you have ever been kissed, little bud, you have lost no dew. Delicious. I shall hurry back. He cast a hard look down at her as she sat there, her arms drooping at her sides. He looked about the room as if consideringly, then nodded at an unseen door at the right. Fatima is there, if you want lights or assistance. And Alsmet, Yusuf's brother, is at the other door beyond. Do not stir, little bird. I shall be back very soon. And he, you promised, I shall not hurt a hair of his head. But he was smiling evilly in the darkness as he drew shut the door and returned to the bound figure by the guarding black. For a moment he stood silent, considering, while Yusuf looked up with glistening-eyed intentness like an eager dog ready for the word of attack. Then, in hasty Turkish, the general gave his directions, and the black nodded and strode to a portier, jerking it down, which he wrapped about Ryder's helpless form. Then he hoisted his burden over his huge shoulder and bore it on after the general. Across the great room they went, and down the long stairs, up which that day a most complacent Hamdi Bey had escorted his just-glimpsed bride. Now, at the bottom of the stairs, a shadowy figure of a sleeping eunuch was stretched. Hamdi Bey spoke sharply, giving a quick order. The black scrambled to his feet, yawned, nodded, and strode away into the main vestibule and out into the garden, to investigate a shadow which the general had just reported, and when he was out of sight, the general and Yusuf, with his unwieldy burden, came quietly down the stairs and turned back into a long, dark hall. 
For a moment they paused outside a wide, many-columned banqueting-room, and there Hamdi Bey stood listening, straining attentive ears for the faint sounds from the service quarters on the other side of the room. He caught the guttural of a half-inaudible voice, and the wash of water and clink of a dish, showing that the belated work of the reception was going draggingly on, but it was all far away and invisible. Satisfied, he went on a few steps to a pointed door set in the heavy stone. From a nail he took down a lantern of heavy, fretted brass and lighted it, not without some difficulty, for his hands were still trembling. Then he took from the black a cumbersome key, which he fitted into the lock and turned heavily. Drawing back the door, he motioned Yusuf ahead, and followed, drawing the door shut. Down a steep stone spiral stair they went, and at the bottom, at the general's order, the black set Ryder down from his shoulder and flung aside the portiere. From its muffling folds Ryder looked out bewilderedly into the darkness about him, illumined only by the yellow flare of the ancient lantern. The general cautioned him to silence, while Yusuf knelt and untied the strip that bound his feet. Then, his arms still bound, he was ordered to march on before them. This, he said to himself, as he silently obeyed that order, this really was the time to pinch himself and wake up. Of all the dark, eerie nightmares, this slow procession through these underground halls, the giant black on his heels, the general's lantern throwing its flickering rays over the huge, seamed blocks of granite foundations. It made him think of the catacombs. It made him think of the Serapium. It made him think of those damp, torturous underground ways of the Villa Bordoni. They seemed to be in the wine cellars. He saw bins and barrels and barred vaults that would have done credit to an English squire, and he reflected fleetly that wine-bibbing was forbidden to Mohammedans, and that Hamdi Bey was a fanatic Moslem. Then he saw open spaces of ancient stuffs, broken tables, and dismantled casks and a broken oar. His earlier observation of the palace had told him that it had a water-gate, and he thought now that they might be near some opening. He wondered if they were going to throw him, pinioned, into the river. He wouldn't put it past this livid, silent, shaking man, and yet the thing appeared so impossible, so theatric, so utterly unrelated to any of the ways that he, Jack Ryder, might be expected to end his days, that it couldn't possibly send more than a shiver of speculation down his spine. And yet men had been thrown into rivers, this very river, and men had disappeared from just such palaces as this. There was the story about young Monkton. He knew it perfectly. He had reminded himself of it the last evening, while he reflected upon this escapade, but he had never actually appreciated the peculiar poignancy of the thing until now. Monkton had met, so rumour reported, a Turkish lady of position, flirted with her, it was said, while on horseback outside her motor, when caught in the crush at Kazir el Nil Bridge. There had been a meeting or two in the back of shops, and then he had boasted, light-heartedly, of a design to take tea in her harem. He had never boasted about the tea. No one had ever seen Monkton again, and he was generally reported, after a stifled inquiry, to have been thrown from his horse in the desert, or spilled out of his sailing-canoe. The government, English or Egyptian, assumed no interest in the matter of gentlemen found in other gentlemen's harems. There were other stories, too. There was one of a little Viennese actress, who, after a dramatic escape, reported a whole winter of captivity in one of these old palaces, and there was a vaguer rumour of a rash young American girl, detained for days. Ryder had always known these stories. They were part of the gossip and thrill of Cairo. 
but he had never till now realized how exquisitely possible was their occurrence. Anything, everything might happen in these hidden secret chambers. These Turks were as much masters here as their old predecessors who had reared these stones. This black upon his heels might have been the grinning faithful executioner of some Khedive or Caliph. He might have been the very Masrur, the sorter of vengeance of al-Rashid. He told himself that it was no time to think of the past. His business, acutely, was in the present. If only he could get his hands untied, if only he could get those untied hands upon that demoniac Turk. But strain as he could upon the knots, they held. It seemed to him that they had been walking for an interminable distance, in odd roundabout ways. Once they had stopped, and he had involuntarily glanced back over his shoulder, but at a word from the general he had kept his head forward again, while he heard the black behind him gathering something that clinked. Later a stolen glance had revealed the eunuch with some tools in one hand and a bag slung over his shoulder. The bag disquieted him. Bags filled a foreboding place in the eastern literature of vengeance. He wondered if he were to go into the river in that bag, with the tools for weight. He decided, feeling now a very odd and definite disturbance in the region of his stomach, that he would tell that general that he was a cousin of the late Lord Cromer and a nephew of Lord Kitchener. Something insistent would have to be done about this. They were passing now through a strange open space, between old arches that for an instant arrested his excavator's interest. He saw in the shadows about them a crumbled, crumbling dome and broken shafts, with half a wall of masonry pierced with arabesques. Traces of old ruins, fragments of some old, forgotten mosque, over which the palace had spread its foundations in bygone days. Buried treasure, looted some of it, for the palace overhead, but still rare and lovely. That was a gleam of lapis lazuli that winked at him from the crumbling mortar under his feet. Then they were between other walls, not crumbling ones, but the solid, pillared walls of the palace masonry, with here and there broad arches of old brick. They stopped. Between two arches the general held his lantern high, flashing it over the surface while Yusuf swung down his sack and knocked with the handle of his tool. Suddenly he stopped and looked at his master, nodding cheerfully. The general lowered his light and stepped back, and Yusuf reared the pickaxe in his powerful arms and sent it dexterously at the wall, between two broken bits of brick. It caught, and sent the mortar spraying. Another blow, and another, loosened a hole in which the black inserted a short iron, and began nervously grinding and prying. Ryder, watching with oppressed and helpless fury, saw the bricks at last break and tumble faster and faster in a cloud of dust, and saw a pocket in the wall become revealed, a long, upright niche, the size, perhaps, of a man's coffin on end. He tried very suddenly to talk. His tongue felt thick and swollen, and there seemed no words in all the world to fit his need of overcoming this fanatic madman. And after all, he had no chance for them, for Yusuf, with a huge palm upon his mouth, urged him suddenly backwards towards that horrible niche. "'Gently, Yusuf, gently,' said the general suavely, and with a slow distinctness that was for Ryder's ears. I gave my word that I would not hurt a hair of his head. Grinning, the black lifted him over the remaining wall, and set him down into the niche, leaving him standing in there like a helpless statue, tasting to the full fury of his heart, the bitterness of his helplessness, and the ludicrous impotence of all struggle. "'Good God, sir, you must be mad!' he said, in a strained, sharp voice, 
that his ears would not have known as his own. "'Do you realize there will be an inquiry? There is such a thing as law?' It seemed to him that he talked in English and stammering Arabic for a long time. The black was kneeling out of sight, stooping over a basin of water and his abominable sack, and Ryder was facing that silent, sardonic face with its fantastic moustache, its evil, gloating eyes. He stopped for very shame. The man was mad, mad and drunk, and there was no appeal from Philip drunk to Philip sober. Mad or drunk, he had devised his vengeance shrewdly. Upon Ryder's helpless body a cold sweat of incredulous horror broke softly out. At his feet he heard the black beginning to fit his bricks and smooth his mortar. "'You do well to save your breath,' said Hamdi Bey at last, as Ryder still stood silent. "'You will need it in this chamber I am providing.' "'But it may be,' he said thoughtfully, "'that your breath will last your need. Thirst may be the more impatient for her victim. They tell me thirst is an obtrusive visitor, as you were this evening. Still, why do you not cry out a little? It will amuse my black.' "'Yes, this was real,' Ryder reminded himself. And these things could happen, had happened. He remembered suddenly the hideous scene outside the dungeons in Francesca da Ramini, when that bestial brother goes into the helpless prisoners. He remembered the sick horror of those groans. He remembered also various excursions of his in the Tower of London and the Signory of Florence, and the sight of old rings and stakes and racks and the feeling of their total unrelatedness to every actuality and yet they had happened, and this thing, for all its fantastic medieval horror, was happening. Brick by brick the imprisoning wall was rising. Brick by brick it intervened between him and sane, sensible, happy, normal life. Eye for eye he gave the general back his look. He had always wondered about the poor devils in underground torture chambers, had wondered how they had the stuff to hold out against such odds, for some belief, some information. Now he knew the stiffening stuff of a personal hate, upholding to the very grave. That sardonic devil's face, that face which was going back upstairs to Amy. But he must not think of that, or he should give way and begin to babble, to plead. He must simply stand and meet that glance. And there came that incredible, insane moment when Ryder looked out on that face through one last breathing space, and then saw the fitted brick settled into place, blot the world to darkness, before his eyes. End of chapter 14。Chapter 15 of the Fortieth Door。This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter 15 underground. Alone in the gloom of that strange room, Amy sat rigid, listening. Not a sound beyond the closed door from the long drawing-room. Not a sound beyond the other door from the room where the slave, Fatima, waited to assist in her disrobing. Silence everywhere, save for a low lapping of water against the masonry beneath her windows. The palace was on the river, then, or on some old backwater. She remembered glimpses of dark canals on her drive that morning. Had it only been that morning? The sound of that soft, hidden water added to her feeling of isolation and remoteness from everything that had been her life before. She thought fleetingly, almost indifferently, of her friends, 
Azima, who to-day had crowned her for happiness, and fond foolish old Miriam and Madame de Coulevin, and Tufik Pasha, weakly cruel but amiable. She thought of them all as unreal figures from whom she had long taken leave. The old life was over. It had died for her when she passed through the dark doorway and met that arrogant, sardonic, fatuous man, the master of this palace. Or, more truly, that old life had died for her when she had flung a black mantle about her chiffon frock and a street veil across her sparkling face and had stolen, daring and breathless, into the lights and revelry of that hotel masquerade. There, when she had shrunk back from the harlequin and had looked up to meet the kindling glance of that mask and tartans, yes, there the old life had died for her for ever, if only she had known it. And now she would only like to die too, she thought miserably after she had been assured of Ryder's safety. She was tense with fear for him, distrusting in every fibre the assurance of that fanatic, outraged Turk. She was not utterly resourceless. When Ryder's revolver had dropped to the floor, she had manoeuvred, unseen by Hamdi Bey, to get her train over it, and when she had stooped for her train, her one free hand had closed over the revolver handle beneath the satin and lace. Now the revolver lay on the divan, and very eagerly she drew it out, feeling it in the darkness, curling her finger about the trigger. Never in her life had she fired a shot, for her most formidable weapon had been the bows and arrows of the children's archery contest of the English club. But she felt in herself now that high-strung tensity that at all cost would carry her on. Carefully she bestowed the small steel thing in the bosom of her dress. Then she stared questioningly at the dress itself. Hastily unpinning her veil, and tying the long train up to her girdle. Then, with a wary glance for the closed door behind which waited that Fatima she dreaded, she stole to the door the general had shut and pressed it softly ajar, peering out into the deserted throne-room. Like a great cave of darkness the room stretched before her, peopled with goblin shadows from the dying candles upon the disordered abandoned table. She saw the chair pushed back where she had risen to struggle with the bay, the long folds of white cloth sweeping the floor, behind which Hamdi had rolled so agilely. A stain was still spreading about an upset glass, and from the overturned cooler the ice-water was dripping, dripping, with a steady, sinister implication. She thought of flight. There was another black, the general had warned her, beyond the door, and there would be bars and bolts on any egress from the harem, but with the revolver in her possession some desperate escape might be achieved. But Ryder, no, the gun was for another purpose she would not squander it yet upon herself. From the boudoir she moved slowly, carrying one of the gilt candelabra from the table to light the room. She would need light for her plan. For ages, long unending ages, she sat there, waiting. A hundred times it seemed to her that she could stand no more, that she must make her way out at all costs, must discover what fate they were dealing to Ryder, but still she forced herself to sit there, her pulses racing, her heart sick with suspense, but desperately waiting. She felt a sudden wave of weakness go through her at an advancing step from the next room, but her chin was up, her eyes fixed and desperate, as the figure of the general appeared in her opening door. "'Ah, light! This is more cheerful, little one!' She had risen, half-moved towards him. "'Is he safe?' "'The stranger? Safe as treasure. Buried treasure, little one.' The bay laughed, and that laughter and the glittering satisfaction of his eyes filled her with foreboding, 
although his next words came with smiling reassurance. "'Not a hair of his head is hurt. I give you my word.' "'But where is he? What have you done?' "'Shut him up, to be sure. Kept him as hostage for your sweet humility. A novel way to win a bride, oh, essence of shyness!' Malevolently he smiled down at her, and in the back of her frightened mind she realized that this man did well to be angry, that the affront to him had been immeasurable, and that many a Turk would have simply driven his dagger through the intruder's heart, and her own, too. But though she tried to tell herself that there was forbearance in him, she felt instinctively that there was deeper kindness in direct, thrusting fury than in this man's sinister mockery. She had sunk back upon the divan upon the bay's approach. Now, as he stood before her with that mask of a smile upon his face, drawing a silk handkerchief across a forehead she saw glistening in the candlelight, she leaned towards him again, her hands involuntarily clasping. "'Monsieur, I seem to have done you a great wrong,' she said tremblingly. "'But it is not so great as you suppose. Will you listen to me? I—' "'Useless! Useless!' he waved the handkerchief negligently at her. I have had words enough. You are not the daughter of Tufik Pasha. You are his stepdaughter. Your French family desires to capture you. I know the rigmarole by heart, you observe. And, of course, when a French family desires to obtain possession of a charming stepdaughter on the eve of her marriage, that family always employs a handsome young man to break into the bride's chamber and point a gun at the husband. His moustache lifted in a grimacing sneer. But it is true. I am French, she interposed swiftly. "'Excellent! I do not object in the least!' He shot his handkerchief up his cuff, and turned to her with eyes that lightly mocked the agonized appeal of the young face. "'French blood is delightful! Quicksilver and champagne! You will enliven me, I promise you!' "'But the marriage! It is not legal, monsieur,' she said desperately, summoning all her courage. "'Tufik Pasha has no right to give me to you!' Indulgently he smiled down at her, then his narrowed eyes travelled slowly about the room. "'But this is a strange time and place to talk of legalities. Do not distress yourself. Your stepfather is your guardian, and your marriage will be as binding as the oath of the prophet. Have no qualms. And now, if your French blood will smile a little—' He started to seat himself beside her, but in that instant she was on her feet. With all the courage in her beating heart she whipped out that revolver and pointed it at him. "'If you call, I shoot,' she said breathlessly. The round mouth of the gun shook ever so slightly in the excited hand gripping it, but in the blazing look she turned on him was the unshaken, imperious passion of a woman swept absolutely beyond all fear. Meeting that look, Hamdi Bey stood extremely still and made no sound. "'There are plenty of shots, for you at the first noise, and for the servants if they come.' She went on in that fierce undertone, and then, passionately, "'What did you do to him?' Take me to him at once. Irresolutely the man stood, and looked up at her under his half-lowered lids. He was near enough for a spring, and yet if that excited finger should press, the girl was capable of anything. She was possessed, and men had died of such accidents before that. "'May I speak?' he murmured in a tone scarcely audible, yet preserving somehow its flavour of sardonic amusement. "'Under your breath!' One sound, remember, and I am a very good shot. But what a wife! he sighed. All the talents! I tell you that I will see him for myself. Take me to him this moment. Shall I give orders and have him brought here? He is quite safe, I assure you. Orders? 
If you summon a servant, I will shoot. No, lead the way, and I will follow you. And if you make one sound, one false move— Decidedly, the girl was possessed. She stood there like a white image of war, her hand on that infernal automatic. He hesitated, gnawed his moustache, then swung sullenly upon his heel. Like some fantastic sculpture from an Amazonian triumph, they crossed the long drawing-room, the erect, gilt-braided general proceeding very slowly, the white-clad feminine creature who held one hand extended, with something boring almost into his shoulder-blades. He did not lead her down the long stairs, past the guarding eunuch. He took, instead, an inner way through the late supper-room, which led down into the pillared hall of banquets. That way was safe of servants now. Crossing the pillared hall, there were no more sounds of late work from the service quarters beyond. Oblivious of the wild developments of that wedding reception, the tired servants, stuffed with the last pasty, warmed with the last surreptitious drop of wine, were asleep at last. Outside the door in the stone wall, the bay took down the lantern, which so short a time before he had replaced upon its nail, and lighted its still smoking wick. He had not restored the key to Yusuf, and he drew it now from his pocket, and fitted it into the lock, drawing back the door. "'These stairs are steep,' he murmured. "'I hardly like you to descend them unaided. But if you insist—go on,' she said imperiously. Down he went, and after him she came, following the way he led her down the long stone underground ways. "'We have, of course, very pleasant stairs down to our water-gate,' he murmured apologetically. "'But since you prefer this way, really not the way that I would have chosen to have you first explore your palace, madame, these, you perceive, are the cellars and old storerooms. I do not want you to talk.' she said urgently. "'But you would not shoot me for it, only for raising an alarm. And surely you cannot be unreasonable about a few words. You must be very careful here. This doorway is low.' It was not past the old ruined mosque, included in the palace's underground world, that he was leading her, but down a narrow branching way, between walls so low that the general's head was bowed in caution. "'This part of the palace is very old,' he murmured over his shoulder. An ancestor of mine, Shayar the Wazir, raised these walls during the wars, for the dispensing of that sacred duty of hospitality which Allah enjoins upon the faithful. It is reported that he was host here to fifty of the enemy during their remaining lifetime, although they had the delicacy not to cumber him with overlong living. It is not, as I said, a pleasant place, but the walls are strong, and so I selected a spot here. Here, somewhere, then in these grim ruins Ryder was penned, helpless and questioning the to-morrow. The girl trembled with excitement when she thought of his joy, his deliverance, and at her hands. For their escape she had no plans, only the decision to thrust the gun into his hands and follow him unquestioningly. Perhaps they could leave the general in his place, and he would wear the general's uniform for disguise. Everything was possible now that she was nearing him, and his safety was at hand. She thrilled with a reanimating excitement that flew its scarlet banners in her cheeks. Only a few steps now. Go on, she said breathlessly. The bay had stopped, and now flashed his lantern over a low, timbered door, studded with ancient nail-heads in a design whose artistry did not arrest her. From a peg inside it he took down a key of brass, fitted it to the lock, and turned it with a deliberation maddening to her tense nerves. Her heart was beating as if it would burst its bounds, only a moment or two. He had trouble with that door. It took his shoulder, 
At last he set it swinging inward slowly on its creaking hinges. Then he stepped back, and with a wave of his hand, invited her to enter. "'Not a chamber of luxury, you understand, but substantial, as you will see. "'Go first, she ordered. He laughed. "'Ever distrustful, little thorn of the rose. "'Follow, then.' And he stepped within, into the darkness, which his failing lantern but little illumined. Calling out in a louder tone in his halting English, "'A visitor, my friend! A tourist of the subterranean!' She had followed him to the threshold, seeing nothing in the blackness but the seamed blocks of stone within the lantern's rays, afraid always to turn her eyes from him or her hand from its outstretched pointing. He said very quickly to her in Turkish, "'If you will wait by the door. The floor is bad, and there is another lantern here on the wall.' At her left he fumbled along the stone wall. She heard him mutter, and then reach, and then she did not know what was happening, for the very ground on which she stood, the solid block of stone began to slip swiftly beneath her feet. She staggered, and felt herself falling, falling, into some precipitately opened abyss. She gave a wild scream, flinging out her arms in terror, and then cold waters closed above her, and the scream ended in a gurgling cry. It was no great distance that she fell. What the drop-stone had revealed, answering the signal of the old lever in the wall that the general had pressed, was a stone well, narrow, deep, implanted there by some ingenious lord of the palace in bygone days, for the subtle elimination of friend or foe or rival. But it was not part of Hamdi's plan to leave the young girl there and close the obliterating stone. Scarcely had the waters met above her head than he was flinging down a rope-ladder whose upper ends were fastened to rings in the floor, and ascending this with swift agility until the waters reached his waist. Then he leaned out and clutched the floating satin bubbling and ballooning yet unsubmerged above the stagnant depths, and drew it towards him. As the struggling girl came gasping within his reach, he carried her panting up the ladder again, and laid her down in the darkness, while he drew up the ladder and closed the stone by pressing that hidden lever but the stone which had dropped so swiftly was slow and heavy in slipping back in place, and when he turned again to Amy, she had ceased her choking cough and was sitting up, thrusting back the dripping hair from her black eyes, staring bewilderedly about the gloom as murky as any genie's cave. The lantern light was almost out. In its expiring gleam she saw no more inky water, but only the damp, moss-grown stones, on which a pool was widening from her wet garments and the half-defined figure of the general stooping over to squeeze the streams from his own wet clothes. The nightmarish horror of it overwhelmed her. For a moment she could have screamed with horror, and then she felt a cold and terrible despair lay its paralyzing hand upon her heart. Somewhere, she felt, beneath those secret stones lay Ryder, drowned, and she was living in her helplessness. No revolver now. That was gone. In the water, perhaps. There was no resource now, no refuge. Strength went out of her, and passive in a dream of evil darkness, she felt herself being hurried stumblingly back through the secret corridors and the dark halls. End of chapter 15「Sick of being upsold at gyms?" 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.